Thank you for calling the famous Fairville, California Bates Motel. We currently have vacancy for 12 spacious rooms. If you'd like to place a reservation, please press 1. Thank you for calling the Bates Motel, where we believe the best place to stay has a mother's touch. They're coming to get you, Barbara. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Welcome to Flight Night. How do we never have things that match? There's always peanut butter, but no fucking jelly. And oh, oh, hello. Thank you for <laughs> Welcome to the Carpenter Queens podcast. Coming to you live from the Welcome it, guys. store. Welcome, fellow Quirdos. Why, you may know me as the spokesperson for the cosmetics line, wear makeup ugly, Nicholas. Joke to my coffee. <laughs> Welcome in, guys. I am the author of Memoirs of a Gay Shut-In, Raymond. <laughs> oh, my God. Hi, everybody. I hope you ha- are having a <laughs> wonderful time. Welcome in. We are super fucking jazzed and slightly nervous <laughs> for this week's episode. This is week, this is episode 16. And today we're just gonna go straight into our film. The news is dead. I'm sorry, everybody. Just go to your Twitters and your Instagrams for updates. Please don't go to Twitter and Instagram for news. Go to like a, a reliable <laughs> news source, guys. Don't listen to him. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Anyways, hello, sweet 16 episode. You had to put in the oh sweet 16. <laughs> I didn't know that was sung by Hilary Duff. Is it really? It's sung by Hilary Duff, like the full theme song. It's like a three minute song. It's sung by Hilary. Is it like one one of her albums or what? No, I don't think so. Like the only oh, it's like made specifically for the show. Mm-hmm. God, what that's interesting. Show. How crazy! She's a Disney and MTV queen. Look at her. She's verse. Yay! Fair warning today, guys. This film itself is extremely well documented. There are podcasts, novels documentaries and dramas dedicated to the production history of this film. We are not trying to recount everything during this sort of production, but we are simply giving our point of view, our perspective, our favorite fun facts and movie trivia. So like we said, there's plenty of other things like we've taken from some of these uh, documentaries and other podcasts and are giving our perspective. I was super nervous to do this movie. We, I think we really didn't realize what we were getting ourselves in for when we put this on our list, to be quite honest. Yeah, we, no, we didn't. We're like, oh yeah, it'd be really, it'd be oh really cute. Let's do Psycho for Mother's Day. Cause you know, a psychotic mother, why not? And then when we thought about it, we're like, fuck, this is like really is hard dense, for. really dense with, pro- no, it just notes all around. Pre-production, production, post-production. It's so dense with history. It's dense with history. It is synonymous with horror, with slashers, with Alfred Hitchcock, the, the world-renowned director. It's I was incredibly intimidated. Oh, I know the cat. I cannot wait to talk about the cast. But I was so immediately intimidated. It was one of those moments where I was like, "Fuck yeah, we're gonna do Psycho!" Super excited. And then as I like started going into my research, it was like, "Fuck, man." <laughs> Not in the sense that I wasn't excited to do it. It's just, I want to do it right. That was my biggest worry is that yeah. we both have such a feverish love for this film and what it stands for. Uh, and so I just wanted to make sure that 
that, you know, no one came for me. Don't come for me. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Well, knock on wood, but nobody's come for us. Yeah, for the, all the dumb shit we say. I don't think you're going to come, <laughs> come for us over Psycho. Listeners, we are checking into the infamously hospitable Bates Motel and talking all about Psycho, written by Joseph Stefano and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Whew, whew, whew. Alfred mother. Hitchcock. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. This is one of my favorite. I think this is my favorite Hitchcock movie, actually. This is easily my favorite. I did. Yeah. I have a deep love for 39 Steps and for The Birds and for Dial M for Murder. Uh, some Vertigo in there as well. Vertigo. Psycho. Hello. <laughs> but Psycho is just, it's literally movie perfection. Just the storm that brewed and the events that happened that culminated into this literally perfect film like it's perfect same same we have nothing but high marks for this movie so you can already kind of feel where we're headed with this Mm -hmm. but we're gonna get into it anyway i will talk about some things that i disagree with and things that have not exactly aged well especially with the main plot twist and premise uh Mm -hmm. but even with its flaws just as like a film itself it it deserves to be studied like this is crazy how all of this happened oh it's masterpiece and like you said it's not without its faults but mm-hmm. cinematically and technically like from mm-hmm. a, a movie standpoint a film standpoint it is a masterpiece it really is uh so currently psycho is only available for rent or purchase wherever you are currently streaming your film uh no one has it has the rights to it on the streaming service which does not surprise me at all quite honestly with this movie this is a classic, you guys. It's mm-hmm. it's in my opinion, it is worth the price of a rental. Obviously, you know we own it on 4K Ultra HD, <laughs> Blu-ray, VHS, Laserdisc, extra special um, edition, only <laughs> one printing. Uh, so obviously we own this movie. But if you haven't seen it, it's a thousand percent at least worth the rental if you don't want to oh, buy it. Yeah, I, I I find that very difficult to believe just because if you haven't seen this film. You know this film. Everybody knows yeah. this film in some way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. If you don't know what it is exactly, you've seen something that's referenced it, something that acknowledges its existence. Something was created because it was inspired by this movie. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This film is referenced throughout pop culture, horror culture, across the board. It's just, it's it, that's how big of an impact this movie has had on the Mm -hmm. world so even for people who don't know it they either know the score they know the infamous plot twist um i don't know they everybody is at least oh it's on their radar at at some uh capacity there's some form of cognizance about it like Mm -hmm. you you know that this exists even if you've never Mm -hmm. fully seen it and i want you to uh but before of course we check into our hotel because you can't smoke in the hotel 420 what you smoking Uh, still working on my stash up here in our lovely Old Faithful cabinet. Um, so I smoked out of Old Faithful. Actually, we swapped over to our cute little silicone ice cream cone that you saw me smoking out of earlier. It's so cute. Um, that was Richard's, uh, purchase because we went, we went to the smoke shop for, oh, we had broke a bowl, I believe. So we just went in there for a replacement bowl. And of course he started looking at the other pieces and it was really cute and I couldn't say no, so... That's also when you got your gas mask too, right? <laughs> that was all Richard. <laughs> I'm not taking any credit for that, but yeah, I'm not gonna lie that that gas mask fucks you up royally. This week, what did I? What the fuck did I smoke? Oh wow! 
Oh, I use Bongarella because the occasion, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it calls called for, for it. it. Exactly. Uh, but I smoked a hybrid because I didn't want to be anywhere too high or too low. <laughs> because true, talking about this movie does raise some like, honestly, some legitimate fears in just this idea of like voyeurism and this idea Ooh, of yeah. huh, being stalked. So this movie does play with those strings for me. So I wanted to make sure I was calm enough that I can talk about it, but not <laughs> too hyped up enough where I popped off this. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, you don't want to be like on the verge of a nervous breakdown. <laughs> but before we begin, I really want to talk about just your association with Psycho. We both have an interesting history with this movie. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think it's mainly due to our both of our upbringings with theme parks. I, funny enough, cannot recall the first time I saw Psycho. I want to say it was during that time period where I was like renting movies from the library at a like quick rate. I was just like, like you, we both went through these periods where we were just consuming movies very quickly. What do you mean periods? We're still, <laughs> we're still doing it. <laughs> so I want to say it was during the my renaissance era when I was like writing movies from the library. And I, I just, like, like you said, everybody's got this, it's on the radar. Everybody knows of Psycho. It's got this cultural impact. And so I was like, oh, that's something I have to see. Obviously, like I'm a horror buff and I was intrigued. So I was like, I have to see this. I'm, I, I'm a person who likes to see the classics. I want to know the history. I want to know where we came from. Mm -hmm. And so how did we get here? Yeah. So I remember I wanted to watch it and I watched it and I was gagged, gagged. Like I couldn't believe that this black and white movie from the sixties was able to like gag me and had this amazing storyline. And then on top of that, I'm also, we're also like frequent theme park visitors. And for a while there, I had a, a season pass to Universal Studios, and my favorite ride there is the Studio Tour. It's where the I best. get to see all the. It's fame. literally the best ride. It is, <laughs> and so you get to see the movie sets, and of course, you always go by the infamous Bates Motel and the Psycho House, and so that's just like it was great to me to be able to like pass this piece of movie history, and on top of that, like I remember for the first couple of years at horror nights we had the terror tram and we actually got to walk through Ugh. the bait the sets of the bates motel and walk past the bates uh the psycho house so that was just like the ultimate for me like that was the ultimate like fan geek movie like geeking out moment for me your association with psycho is wonderful to me just due to the fact that my first association with psycho wasn't actually even the movie i wasn't aware that this existed it was when we went to Universal Studios and we went on the tram ride, that was my first introduction to films, how films were made. And that's, I think that's the point. That's if I can like trace my trauma as far back as possible, that's the <laughs> end point right there. Uh, yeah. So my first association was, with it was being on the tram ride and seeing Norman Bates pull uh, Marion's body out from the hotel and putting it into the case and then chasing the damn tram ride, getting scared mm -hmm. shitless. I don't think I saw the movie until I was maybe 14, at least in my first memory of watching it. And I remember being fully blown away by all of this. By think I didn't think that a black and white film, because at the time you're stupid and you're young, I didn't think that a black and white film could scare me or like impact me in that way, in the way that Psycho has. So yeah. I, th this this movie is so interesting because it's regarded as one of the first slasher films, 
technically mm-hmm. speaking, it's Peeping Tom from 1960 right. or Black Christmas as well is considered the full like flasher element. Oh. Flasher, a full slasher, not a flasher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just to see that this concept is just played with all the time. And some of my favorite films like Scream is a slasher did exactly what this movie did. And I wasn't aware of that until I watched this. So to be able to trace it is just like, it was mind blowing for me. The universal lot itself is so rich in history. And every time I'm there, I just get blown away. I'm a big Mm -hmm. nerd. We're both big nerds. We're huge nerds if you guys haven't picked that up. (laughs) (laughs) But the like Psycho is the biggest nerd dumb for, I think for, both of us because we are aware of the history behind it didn't we go see hitchcock together i'm yeah we did and it's just so good and i love that your first like introduction to psycho was at universal studios like where it was filmed and Mm -hmm. the, the the company that funded it it's it's awesome that that that's how it happened but same like the universal backlot is so rich with history all those backlots and all those sound stages on the backlot are just so it's it's crazy to think like how many movie stars and directors and famous movies have been filmed back there kind and of I like think touch that's, this it, it's yeah wild. I, that's great I love that I love that that was your first introduction that would like just pique your interest and you're like I have to see this movie now had to absolutely see this movie because this movie is the ripple effect in which it gave the film industry just Ooh. because this movie changed everything it changed everything (laughs) yeah to say the least like honestly for what it did if we for what it did for films what it did for horror what it did for alfred what it did for the actors and actresses involved and the rippling effect of its influence is just like astronomical like it's 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 really hard to just like put into words this movie is essentially like a catalyst for the horror genre, the slasher genre, mm-hmm. and launched the career of not only its lead, Janet Lee, but then her daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis. Like if it wasn't for this movie, neither of them would have had careers and we wouldn't, I mean, maybe we would have got the slasher genre regardless, but we wouldn't have got it as quickly as we did and in the way that style that we did. The styling and the history of this movie, the this movie almost wasn't made multiple times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this movie had so much difficulty finding funding, finding a production company that would work with it. The MPAA was notoriously hateful toward this mm-hmm. movie. No one can touch this movie. And they tried in made I know, we're not gonna talk about it. We're, we're, not, <laughs> we're not gonna talk about that train wreck. But like I I wanna uh, like just touch my index <laughs> finger on it for a split second. <laughs> Because we touched on it in film school, and I just I I can't talk about Psycho without talking about the horrible, horrible Gus Van Sant shot for shot remake. Horrible! It was an experiment. It was an experiment, and that's all that I'll get. failed. <laughs> I don't know if it was meant to be successful, but that's a whole other. If you want us to talk about Psycho and us talking about both of them, and we could do a remake versus the original, let us know in the comments. Listen on this one or at our Instagram at, at the Carpenter Queens. I'd love to have a conversation about it, at least in some way, shape, or form. Because we can have wild. a conversation about it, but I don't want to go like a uh, comparison because there is no comparison, quite honestly. T. Tina. <laughs> it's, uh, I know. But we're, Tina, we're, bring Tina! me the axe. <laughs> so let's begin on this wonderfully rich history before we talk about our film and our talks about it. Psycho, which is celebrating its 61st anniversary this year, it is now officially qualified for AARP. Yay! (laughs) 
Uh, originally released on June 16th of 1960 in New York City, but then had a wide release on September 8th of 1960. Our runtime is 109 minutes, and our taglines are going to be quite different. They feel very different, and that's okay. Yeah. I love that. The picture you must see from the beginning or not at all. For no one will be seated after the start of Alfred Hitchcock's greatest shocker, Psycho. Don't give away the ending, it's the only one we have. An Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece. So we're going to address these taglines later, just because the part of the history behind Psycho also involves its marketing, which was just genius it wasn't the first of its kind but it was genius it totally added to the gimmick and it really made people Mm want to see it like when you're when you're depriving people from of something or saying you have to do it by this time and you can't come in after or whatever when you get people restrictions essentially it makes them want it more don't ask me why Mm -hmm. there's probably some weird psychological reason to it that i don't know but it works uh, Britney Spears said it fast, bitch. Give me more. I just <laughs> could not wait to squeeze in a fucking Britney Spears reference into this podcast. Hashtag free Britney. Just <laughs> <laughs> for my coffee. Oh, Jesus. Gross. I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it in. Tina. God damn it. Moving on. <clears throat> Let's go on to the breakdown. So directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Written by Joseph Stefano, based off of the 1959 horror novel Psycho by Robert Block. I have not read the book. I've never even seen the I book. Have. You read the book? I've read the book. It is wild. Really? It, there's beats that follow the same thing, and we're going to talk about it when we talk about the script. But it is not. It's not a vast departure, but tonally, it's just. I remember being far more disturbed from the reading it, but that's just how I feel about reading any horror novel because it's in my head. Mm-hmm. Get out. Exactly. And you're going to make it way more twisted and dark than what it really is. I know. I've seen way too many horror movies. <laughs> they don't make serial killers. They just make serial killers more invented. Everybody's a suspect. <laughs> Starring Janet Lee in her iconic role of Marion Crane. I cannot see anyone else playing this role, except for Janet Leigh. Uh, Not at all. She does an impeccable job playing the main character, Marion Crane. And not to mention, she gave us fucking Jamie Lee, our future final girl. I I love that they kept it in the family. But continuing on, we have Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. Also, an excellent performance. Very subtle. And then once it explodes, it explodes. It's beautiful. I I couldn't agree more. He does an... He gives an amazing performance in this movie as this... What's the word I'm looking for? Panty ass mama. <laughs> for lack of a better word, yeah. <laughs> and then turns into this like psychotic killer by the end. I love it. I'm gonna address his acting multiple times because I will. We're gonna have to address that Anthony Perkins was uh, famously in same-sex relationships in, during his upbringing in Hollywood. He did marry um, a woman and has wonderful children. Apparently, some of them are really great musicians, but his portrayal of Norman has those quick subtleties of that are so nuanced within the queer community Mm -hmm. that some of the scenes watching it now, especially since we're dissecting and looking at it with a queer lens, it was really heartbreaking. And I I can't wait to talk about those. I keep saying that this episode because I'm so excited, but like it's his performance and what he gives to it from his own perspective and history, I feel like is was lost during that time period. And now that we get to look back at it now and know his history, mm-hmm. it just, uh It makes you appreciate uh, his hard. performance even more. 
So we have Vera Miles, infamous as Lila Crane. We have John Gavin as Sam Loomis, which I never, ever, ever picked up that Sam Loomis is the same name in Halloween. I never picked up on that. I did I feel it. Like such an idiot. No, same. I really didn't. I didn't pick up on it until this watch for this episode, and I was like, oh, I've seen this movie ten million <gasps> times, and I've never noticed same. Sam Loomis. We- we're called the Carpenter Queens, and that is the one <laughs> thing that we didn't pick up. Horrible. For those who aren't understanding what we're talking about, Sam Loomis. Dr. Loomis. Hello. Halloween. Hello. Donald Hello. Pleasance. Hello. Reference. And then, and then it's reference again in Scream. Hello. Ripple effect. <laughs> we have Martin Balsam as Detective Milton Abergast, and the role of mother was technically played by six uncredited people. Uh, we have... Some body doubles by Mitzi Costner, Annie Dore, and Margot Epper, but the voices mainly done by Virginia Gregg, and some work was done by Jeanette Nolan and Paul Jasmine. This was all intentional on Hitchcock's part, just so the audience could never try and figure out who Mother was. So every time she was shown, she would have a different body style, different body shape, different voice. So that way it always kept you on your toes until the reveal, and it's genius. That's interesting. I never knew that. Moving on to the reviews. IMDb gave it an 8.5 out of 10. Metacritic, a 97 out of 100. Holy shit. Rotten Jeez, Tomatoes, a 96% on the tomato meter and a 95% audience score. And box office, it made 50 million. And that's cumulative over 60 years. And adjusted for inflation, that's roughly $451 million. Are you fucking kidding me? James Cameron, eat your heart out. I said I felt. Now, if you were wondering- I know! <laughs> James Cameron could never, especially when we talk about the budget and the ridiculousness that went involved in securing it, the amount of money that it made back and how much money it made for Hitchcock is... I mean... But he had the last laugh in the end. I mean, that's all I'm going to say. The receipts are there, Mama. 8.5 out of 10. 97 out of 100. Look at the material, Mama. 96%, 95%. Those are fucking high-ass scores. And this is why this movie is so highly regarded. And we're going to dive into our production, pre-production history, right after these messages from our sponsors. Uh, welcome back to Ricky Lake and serial killers and the women who love them. <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin with our pre-production history. So, in order to start the production history of Psycho, which has its own sordid and complicated past, we have to acknowledge the inspiration and foundation for this film and many, many others in the horror filmography. Mm-hmm. Ed Gein was the main basis of the book Psycho and remains an everlasting tale of horror in American history. A convicted murderer and body snatcher, Gein's crimes, which were committed around Plainfield, Wisconsin, held America in its grips when his crimes were discovered in 1957. Authorities discovered he had dug up corpses from local graveyards and created trophies and keepsakes from their bones and skin, having only confessed to murdering to two women, Mary Hagen in 1954 and hardware store owner Bernice Warden in 1957. The atrocities committed remains a source of inspiration for horror and American pop culture. His shyness and his overt attachment to his mother, who was a religious zealot, and his keepsakes remain constant themes used in films. The films that draw main inspiration from him are Psycho, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs. And using Ed Gein as a form of loose inspiration, Robert Block wrote the 1959 novel, and Block lived only 35 miles away from Plainfield when all of this was happening. So 
the novel went on to become a bestseller and would eventually land in the hands of one particularly British famous director. Wow. So that's quite the mm -hmm. journey just from the actual crimes that inspired the novel. <laughs> like This is an insane story from the jump. To start with this it is. Um, serial, well, I guess I won't call him a serial killer, but this um, a mass murderer, I guess. Murder. Yeah, murder. Not even mass. See, that's the thing with this. I, I know that there's a fascination behind Gein and a lot of other murderers for that fact, if we're going to touch that. Yeah. But his in particular is so stretched out due to the atrocity that and the horror that was involved. Um, I won't go too far into it because I know there's also podcasts dedicated right. to all of this, but his in, his use of corpses is a huge draw for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. He was found for having a belt made of nipples, a Ooh. lampshade that was made of skin, skulls that were turned into bowls. And I don't want to go too much into the details because it is very disturbing, but this, held America just like nothing else. It's so funny that we're talking, it's not funny, but it's so interesting that we're talking about this when we talked about the impact of serial killers last serial week mom, serial yeah. mom. <laughs> <laughs> but this then went on to be Psycho. And of course the Psycho novel was then picked up by Alfred. All these other movies I know you've seen. It, uh, do you see the same inspiration drawn for all of those? Absolutely. I totally see the inspiration in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, in Psycho and Silence Silence, I totally see it all. Um, these mm -hmm. characters from these movies are totally inspired by horrific real life events, which is life what imitating art, yeah. imitating art. life, <laughs> imitating life. We, uh, God, we're so screamed today because <laughs> we talked about this as well in Hereditary and the fact that Charlie's death is so violent and aggressive and terrifying because it was real yeah. so it, people are always drawing from other things but it's so cool to see them drawing from it and seeing where it evolves because you know what here, i also find ironic sorry to cut you off but we both talked about last week that we're not into true crime because it's just like too real for us and we love the fantasy of horror but horror is influenced and inspired by true crime a lot of the time so it's funny that mm -hmm. we find comfort in horror but not in true crime i think it just mainly revolves around the fact that true, true crime especially the ones that i was terrified by the way i was fucking terrified of unsolved mysteries when i was a kid that anytime theme that theme song, song came on <laughs> <laughs> it still says stories down my spine but true crime is terrifying to me because there's facts and then there's fiction. So like the fiction I know is made in a studio or on a set. So mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about the implications of what's actually going on. True crime, I that will keep me up at night True. forever. Especially ones that are unsolved, fuck that. Exactly. Moving on with our production history. Alfred Hitchcock, who had just completed North by Northwest, great movie by the way, was looking for something exactly. to adapt into his next film. At this time, Hitchcock was already the megastar director for the industry, having made his mark in films like The 39 Steps, Rebecca, Strangers on a Train, Dial M for Murder, and Rear Window, just to name a few. His filmography at the time had reached 49 films at this point in his career, 10 of which were silent films and the remaining 39 in sound. I don't think I've ever seen any of his silent films. I know I've never seen any of his <laughs> silent films. I don't know how I can get my hand on them, but I, I, we're talking about this because we need to state why this is kind of ridiculous. 
he was well established by then. He mm-hmm. was known as the maestro of mystery mm-hmm. and the macabre. Like everyone knew who Alfred Hitchcock was. Mega, mega star. Absolutely. He was essentially like the like James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, whatever of, of the era. And it, it he had a TV show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, mm-hmm. which was an anthology series, correct? Correct. It was kind of like the Twilight Zone where it was like these little mini stories. And he was famous just for him himself. Everybody knew Alfred. His silhouette, bitch. People knew this motherfucker by his silhouette. I love it. Moving on, Hitchcock's assistant, Peggy Robertson, sent Hitchcock the novel after discovering a positive review about the book. Originally, Paramount Pictures, whom Hitchcock was in line to work with, rejected the premise for the film, believing it to be filth and below the production studio. However, Hitchcock acquired the rights for $9,500, which adjusted for inflation would be roughly about $87,000 today. This would be the basis for the new film. He reportedly also ordered Peggy to buy up all the remaining copies to preserve the novel's surprise, which is a total Total, total Alfred Hitchcock thing. <laughs> and I love it. I love it. This is why, I mean, I'm sure you do too, but my, me personally, this is why I love Alfred Hitchcock. He loved a surprise. He didn't want to spoil anything for anybody. He wanted to create an experience for his audience, not just a film, an experience, which is why people weren't let in after the beginning. And I just love it. I love it. He was aware of what films did for the culture. He was a huge, just like an, an appreciator and someone who just loved movies and cinema. And he adapted with the times going from silent to sound and his history, which you could all read up on is really fascinating to, to look up on and see how he got to this point. But just, <laughs> it is a total Hitchcock move. He's such an eccentric. He's so wild and there are it is known that he was difficult. He was definitely extreme in some of the motives that he did. And mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff he did was, it, it's shitty. I'm just going to say it's shitty. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's one of those things, because it's the same thing with Stanley, Stanley Kubrick. Wonderful director, but also known as an eccentric and sometimes very difficult abusive. to work with. And abusive, mm-hmm. for that matter. Very. And we understand this. Like, we're not trying to mull over the fact. Sugarcoat these, it. Yeah, yeah, no, we're not trying to, um, what's the word? Like, put these people on a pedestal at all by any means. We know these people are humans. We know these people were not without their faults. Um, but we are trying to just appreciate the artwork, the piece of film, and what it's done for the horror community. Exactly. Thank you for addressing that. So at this time, Hitchcock had come to face much criticism and quote unquote genre competitors. He had two projects ready to go with Paramount, uh, Flamingo Feather and No Bail for the Judge and disliked the Star Machine run by the studios at the time. Studios at the time were oh my ridiculous. God. Mm-hmm. They were so powerful to the point at which they had, it was it's unjust and in, insane. And trusted, he also trusted very few with perspective material. So it was always difficult for him to pick new things to do. So he needed some form of really good inspiration and Psycho came along. This would also become the perfect storm since as Hitch would finally pick, I called him Hitch, Hitchcock would pick the film for his next project. So unfortunately, Paramount didn't want Psycho to be made. In fact, they also refused the script originally until Alfred had picked it up. So Paramount plain out refused to provide his usual budget. So to continue forward, Hitchcock offered to film quickly and cheaply. And he would do this by filming in black and white, which I want to address because 
it's so weird to talk about Psycho because when people think of Psycho, they think it's older than it actually is because it's filmed in black and mm -hmm. black and white. Because uh, at the time in the 1960s, we were still shooting in color. Like color was still a thing. It was just more expensive because color had been implemented by like the late 1950s. So it was a standard practice. So do it cheaply is black and white. Do you think it like, I think it actually aids the movie. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Filming something in black and white gives you a lot more leeway as far as, uh, well, at least for the time, like production wise, it would, it would give mm -hmm. you a lot more leeway as far as production design for the sets, costuming, makeup. Like they used, I'm gonna jump forward a little bit, but they used fucking Hershey syrup for the blood. And they were only able to do that because it was in black and white. Tonally, I think the black and white gives off this impression of someone's morality in black and white and where they are and who they are, because this movie really plays with this idea of morality, who is a good person, and it also does delve into uh, this spectrum of like mental illness and then the disturbed and then relationships with other people. It's, this movie's very deep and it's so exciting to talk about because this movie like really catapulted cinema to like this new elevation of what we can do and what we can talk about and what we can show absolutely it was a mm -hmm. groundbreaking film on multiple levels which we'll get to mm -hmm. once we get like deeper bam, into bam, the production bam, bam, bougie. Mm -hmm. um but what i would suggest that you do is keep your wig on. So in order to save more money, he also decided to use his television crew from his TV show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Paramount still didn't want to move ahead and claimed that all the sound stages were being used. What like a, like a mean girl thing to do. Sorry, they're all filled up. We can't, can't sit here. You can't sit with us! <laughs> Although at the time, the industry was in a lull. This would push Hitchcock to finance the whole project himself and deciding to film it at Universal Studios and using the crew if... Paramount would distribute the film and he would push aside his usual $250,000 director's fee and propose that he could keep 60% stake in the film's negatives. That would come to his benefit once this movie was released. He knew he what he was doing. Guy. Yeah, he knew exactly what he was doing. He had faith in his project and he knew that this was gonna like, he knew this was gonna take off. Otherwise he wouldn't have waived his fee and all, all this other stuff. He knew exactly what he was doing and it worked out for him. But I just want to address that. I find it fucking wild and ridiculous that this well-established director who had made 49 films up to this point and was well-established and the whole production company is just like, no, we don't want to do it. We're not going to do that. We're not going to yeah. touch that. Like, just what? what? <laughs> it's the whole, like, you have to think of the era still as well. This is True. still this is early 60s by the time he was proposing all this it was probably still the late 50s mid to late 50s 59 um yeah. so this whole like morals things come into play the mpaa comes into play studios don't want to take a risk on a movie about a killer and especially one dealing with the subject matter and he refused to do any like hardcore stars in the movie exactly like detract from the message exactly and as we said like the film industry or sorry the studios were like movie making machines in this time period where mm -hmm. they were using all the same stars in all their movies so that way you know in their eyes and at the time big stars meant big money and so alfred hitchcock was coming with this fucking movie about this loner shut-in with no big movie stars in it the production company was like no this is not going to make any money no ma'am mama this is garbage oh. originally a writer from hitchcock show james p Cannaval wrote the first draft 
Hitchcock felt it was boring and read like a television short story. In walks Joseph Stefano. Having only worked on one film prior, Hitchcock agreed to meet, and despite his inexperience, Stefano was hired. The script is somewhat faithful to the novel. Norman Bates, who in the book is more of an unsympathetic character, described as middle-aged, overweight, and more unstable. The novel also has Bates as the main centralized character from the jump. Having Marion be the main character at the beginning and then switching narratives in the middle was changed for the film. It, it it plays beautifully. The, the novel was also far more violent. The shower scene in particularly actually had Marion essentially decapitated, uh, oh, beheaded, shit. instead of stabbed to death. <clears throat> also, fun fact, a change from the novel to the book. The first name of Marion Crane was originally Mary Crane, but due to a real-life Mary Crane already existing in Phoenix, they had to change it. <laughs> Especially because it's, like, set in Phoenix for the movie. <laughs> That's, mm-hmm. That would have been kind of awkward. But I want to talk about the change from an unsympathetic character to this meek, adorable, very good-looking Norman Bates that we get for Psycho. And <clears throat> that it's it's it changed the game because you created a character that want someone sympathized with, that they shouldn't be sympathizing with. And you also created a character that no one was expecting and a character that eerily like ripples into real life serial killers who have used this like sweet guy persona to murder people so it's just like this weird like mixture of like wanting to subvert and change the game but also mirroring real life like that's so wild to me yeah that was a genius move on alfred hitchcock's part to change the character of norman bates and make him really like understated and meek and mild um because at least from my first watching i remember i well i mean obviously you know he's the killer but he gives like obviously for the time when people didn't know what to expect you wouldn't expect him to be a killer he was so soft-spoken and sweet and you know in his interactions with marion he just seems like he doesn't have any friends he doesn't see people very often obviously he only knows this mother so it was really weird for the the twist at the end like nobody was expecting it genre breaking like it's it's so brilliant in how subtle and simple it is and how uh, effective it is to like it's 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 creepy (laughs) like that's the only (laughs) way i could put it like it adds this whole new creepy element to it that it's just it still freaks me out it It is and it's it's wild that you know it influence future serial killers to take this route of being the soft sweet handsome soft-spoken man to lure in his victim and then kill them which is awful horrible i know it's very it's very goose pimply it's very scary but to move on from this terrifying ordeal the cast and crew so in order to keep costlo like we said and do to Alfred wanting to be, you know, comfortable because he's bougie that way, took some of the television crew, including the cinematographer, John L. Russell, and set decorator, George Milo. And I wanted to address them because they do fantastic work. Absolutely. Oh my God, I love their work. He would also bring on collaborators, Bernard Herman for the now infamous music composition, George Tomasini as editor and, and Saul Bass as storyboarder and title designer. I want to address for a very quick second, there was some controversy revolved around Saul who came on board during time period during production to help film 
the falling down scene with the private investigator. Mm -hmm. They had done a couple scenes because unfortunately Alfred was sick with the flu at the time, so he couldn't come to set. So in order to keep production keeping going, they did it and they followed the storyboard as quick, as closely as they could. They did a fantastic job. Hitchcock looked at the dailies the next day. He said, no, we're changing everything because it was shown in a different perspective that he didn't want. But there were rumors that Saul shot portions of the shower scene or he shot portions of the movie and it it was a huge debate for years i believe it's still a debate but as far as i know and all of my research and as far as we can find hitchcock directed every single shot in the movie okay that's so fair. storyboarded but hitchcock shot got it and but the storyboards are a big part of the production and there's a reason why this we have such iconic shots and then iconic scenes mm-hmm Janet Lee, who was Hitchcock's first choice, would be casted in the lead role for a quarter of her usual fee. She agreed after having only read the novel and wanting to work with the famous director. Hello, who wouldn't want to work with Alfred Hitchcock? I know, I know. I would have jumped at the chance. Exactly. Her co-star, Anthony Perkins, who was hired and used as a source of inspiration for the new direction Norman would take, was hired for $40,000, which isn't much oh i guess it's a pretty big deal for a low budget film especially in you know late 1950s i would assume so because i'm assuming if we adjust for inflation because she takes forty thousand in the movie and that translates to like three hundred thousand dollars nice okay yeah so filming filming took place november 11th from 1959 to february 1st 1960 on the same location of hitchcock's television show was done on revenue studios who was now also known as the infamous universal backlot Yes, yes, <laughs> all of it. I love this lot. I fucking love this lot. It smells great. It has a wonderful energy to it and the history behind it. I mean, hello, look at the material. I mean, seriously, and we're huge film geeks and we just love, even if it's just seeing it from afar and in passing, I know. Love, <laughs> I know. love going on the back lot and hopefully God willing, one day we'll be able to actually set foot on the back lot, like to actually work, if not just a fucking visit. Not a joke, just a fact. Filming would start in the morning and finish by 6 p.m. Hitch was very, very strict on this as he would go dine with his wife at the famous film restaurant Chasen's. Apparently, <laughs> this is like a big thing for Hitchcock is that he was very strict about it and he would get very upset if they started going past 6 p.m. I'm, so I'm not mad it, at it. I mean, cause... I know shit. Give it to me. Uh-uh, I love I... the schedule. Yeah, exactly. Coming from like a film background, we both know what early call times and late call times are like, and it's never that fun. The film was shot on 50 millimeter lenses on 35 millimeter cameras for our tech heads out there who needs to know all that. This was provided as an angle similar to the human vision involving the audience in a more voyeuristic approach, which plays beautifully. There is a lot of voyeurism in this movie. Like, Alfred Hitchcock puts the audience as one of the voyeurs. Um, Anthony Perkins, aka Norman Bates, is a voyeur. It's very much <laughs> film for voyeurs, I guess. Even from the jump, even from the beginning yeah. of the movie, it's meant to be a perspective of someone on the outside watching in. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's it plays so excellently well with the themes in this movie. Uh, lead actors Perkins and Lee were given full freedom to interpret their roles and improvise. Uh, a famous example being Norman's habit of eating candy corn was all brought in because of Perkins and is also a major motif in a lot of Hitchcock films. He involves food a lot in his movies. 
Does he? He does. Yeah, there he is. He does a lot of film. He does, he does it a lot. It's so interesting. Because she also eats that bread while she's consuming that story in one of my favorite scenes. It's, oh, where they're in the, the office? The yeah. pilot room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the the candy part was interesting. It gave Anthony Perkins this childlike quality. Yes, it did. Thank you for bringing that up because a lot of the a lot of the characteristics that he does, including the stuttering that he does, mm-hmm. gives this like innocent, childlike nature to him, which just is terrifying to watch when he switches over to mother. I know. Throughout filming, Hitchcock would create and hide various versions of the mother corpse and hide it in Janet Lee's dressing room. She took the joke well, so that's good, but she wondered if she was being used to gauge the scare around the corpse for the audience would react well to it. Oh, come on, Hitch. She's already being terrified as it is. I love that. I love when directors fuck with <laughs> the actors or vice versa. I think it just brings, because I feel like some of the times on set it can get very stiff especially when serious. you're yeah it can get very serious when you're filming certain scenes or maybe when you're just starting out so if like the main actress or the director cracks a joke it it just like lets the the room breathe a little and lets everybody know like even though that like we're making a film this is serious like it's you should have fun and it'll show we're, on we're making movies this is right. fun this is fun <laughs> this is magic i agree only if if it's meant well and it's done well i'm not talking about like the exorcist and the director shooting a gun to get an illicit like full scare out of their actors (laughs) i don't want that shit this is fine don't terrorize your crew exactly like don't terrorize them as long as it's in good fun Mm -hmm. hitchcock's cameo were at this point a signature occurrence and was placed at the beginning of the film as not to detract from the tension that builds throughout the film. Uh, For those of you who haven't watched any Hitchcock films, he is notorious for making a cameo in every single one of his films, whether it's in the background, a walk-by. No, you can miss him because I've seen like a, like a, what's a, like a a mashup, thank you, a compilation video. And in one of his films, I think it's like Lifeboat, which takes place in a lifeboat with like four characters who are stranded at sea, how was he gonna make a cameo in there, bitch? I guess somebody had a newspaper in there and he was printed on the newspaper, like in an ad. Apparently though, like it got to be a chore at this point. (laughs) And he kind of, he knew he had to be in it because everyone was gonna be expecting it. Mm -hmm. He didn't want it to like fuck with the flow, man. Like what was he gonna do? Come out of one of the rooms at the base motel? Oh, hello. Like, <laughs> like, what do you wanted to do? Yeah. So he he makes a small cameo in the very beginning. He's like in the back. I think he's in the background as Marion comes back to work. Periuses. <laughs> the infamous shower scene took up one third of Lee's time on set. It took seven days to film the iconic sequence. That is insane. That's a lot of time to be wet. That a long time scene to be wet, honey. Is about two minutes tops, maybe three in, of the whole movie. And it took seven days. Seven days. Honey, honey! <laughs> uh, for her cover-up, Rita Riggs, the costume designer, would use plain moleskins, which were essentially moleskin band-aids that dancers used to cover up scars and bruises. Riggs would cut out shapes and conceal Lee's private areas. The final shot in particular, which is an extreme close-up on Marion's eye, zooms in and out, was incredibly difficult to shoot. Lee had to remain still with water splashing in her eyes while the cameraman had trouble due to having manually focused while moving the camera. She was also given contacts that would give her eyes a glossy dead look, but contacts at the time took weeks to adjust to. Thus, Lee had to go in and hold that pose all on her own. That is a long shot. 
that shot. That and, is the longest shot. And from what I know, that shot would have even been longer, but they had to cut because she eventually blinked. And the only one who caught it was Alma, uh, Hitchcock's wife, because she's an editor and film mm-hmm. She's the only one who picked it up, and I think that's sick. Apparently, according to the Hitchcock movie, she had a lot more involvement. I'm sure she did. Mm-hmm. But I can't really find, like, I couldn't find physical receipts. evidence. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find the receipt. I want to see the receipts. But the shower scene is so iconic. There were so many moving parts. Uh, The scene itself is one of the most dissected scenes in film history. It's the most known from the movie. If you don't know the movie, you know the showers. Mm -hmm. Or at least know the fucking score. Exactly. It's even the subject of a documentary, 7852, Hitchcock's shower scene. And it's called that due to reportedly there are close to 78 shots done and 52 cuts used in 45 seconds of footage. Although this has been disputed and there's a safer guess of about 60 shots. But we're still going to stick with the 78 because it just, it, it sounds better. <laughs> I've seen the documentary and it's insane. Regardless of what you want to argue of how many shots and how many cuts there really are, for the time period and for the fucking technology at the time, this is a huge because they are mm-hmm. manually cutting actual film and like splicing it together. You know how long That's that why fucking it took seven takes? Days. <laughs> this is why it took seven days to shoot. I don't even want to know how long it took to edit. Jesus Christ. Like editing nowadays is so easy. Click and drag, oh, yeah. click and drag, click and drag. Bitch, in 1960, they were splicing film and gluing it together. Oh my God. Uh, the use of cuts and edits were used to create the sense of the camera itself being the knife. With each stab, a cut was made in the film, and its use of editing and camera angles gave the sense of a full nude murder without really actually showing anything. And this is how he fucks with the audience's mind and believing what they want to believe, and that's what makes this movie so powerful. Mm-hmm. A lot of people at the time, and for years, people swore that they saw gore. People swore that they saw... I saw a nipple. Yeah, that they saw... <laughs> well, whether it was nudity or whether it was gore or whether it was the knife actually going into Marion's body, people swore that they saw it. The editing the camera angles, the score, it was all so suggestive that people really believed that they saw what they saw when clearly <laughs> they saw almost nothing. It's the power of suggestion is incredible here because it's also done again later on. And it's one of the lesser known aspects. When Lila is going through the house and she goes to Norman Singh, she opens a book that has nothing on it, nothing suggestive. They don't even show anything inside of the book, but her reaction to the books are meant to in- indicate that it's just something horrid and shouldn't be seen by people. Mm -hmm. So Hitch knew exactly how to do it and I bet it saved a shit ton of money. (laughs) Like like (laughs) we've said multiple times on this podcast, usually when you put restrictions on artists, they blossom. To shoot the straight on shot of the shower head, the shower was rigged only to dispense water on the outer edges of the camera strategically placed in the middle, never once getting wet. That is fucking difficult. I don't even know how they did that. I love movie magic. And you mentioned the blood that was used in that scene was, in fact, Hershey's chocolate syrup Mm -hmm. because it looked really good on black and white film. The density of it felt realistic. The knife entering the flesh sound was created by plunging a knife into a cassava melon? Very specific. Apparently, they lined up a bunch of melons and Alfred turned around and they just kept stabbing them and he would indicate which ones he wanted and he knew them all by name. So cassava made it. Go, go, go stab a cassava melon. Apparently, it sounds realistic. That's oddly specific. <laughs> uh, a body double was also used for wider shots, although this was debated for a long time. 
Arlie Renfro was used for certain shower scenes. Originally, Hitchcock did not want music playing over the shower scene. However, one composer, Bernard Herrmann, insisted on its inclusion and showed it to Hitch. It was used. The infamous murder score uses strings instead of a full orchestra, mainly due to budgetary cuts. You you restricted and I'm going to work with, I can work with, and the use of strings and violins, it's, it, so I've been watching nonstop psycho stuff for the past like three days and it is fully enveloped into my subconscious. Cause when I woke up this morning, all I kept thinking about was just me, 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 me. <laughs> everybody knows the score. Everybody knows the score. Yeah. It's now infamous movie score. And like come to find out that we wouldn't have had this score had he had a bigger budget. That's insane. It would have been- That's insane. I feel like it would have- It would be completely different. Yeah, thank you. I was just about to say, I feel like it would have given a completely different tone. It's, I believe Hitchcock also credited the, our composer and gave them an additional mo additional money because he approved of the soundtrack so much. But it is extremely important to the movie. The music is what sets everything because they show- I've watching one of the documentaries, they showcased a clip of when Norman is revealed at the end and runs after Lila. They showed it without sound, which is how he originally wanted it. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's good. But once that music's involved, it becomes the most terrifying sequence. And it's hard for me to look at it. Like, mm -hmm. honestly, it creates like a visceral reaction out of me. Scores make the biggest difference. And mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of composers are very either underutilized or not recognized enough unless or they're like- underappreciated. Yeah, like m scores can make a film iconic, just like honestly. Psycho. <laughs> In order for horror to work, you really need a good soundtrack, honestly, because I won't know when to jump or when to be scared if I'm not given a cue. Mm -hmm. So like all good horror filmmakers and any filmmaker for that matter, they know that sound is just as important as what you're seeing on the screen. Now, our last piece of film history is the release and its controversy. So the film is a perfect example of a push against the production code during this time period using the United States. The MPAA, the use of sexuality and violence, especially uh, during the opening scene of Marion and Sam, were huge taboos for the production code at the time because it was not okay to show people who were not married getting down and dirty a little bit. So it's famously stated that Alfred offered up, I will keep the shower scene exactly the way it is if I can reshoot the opening. And he offered to open the set for them to come on in and make sure that it's everything up to code. They said, okay, they agreed to this filming. The day that they decided to film, no one showed up. So he kept the opening scene the way that it was. <laughs> uh, also the use of gender nonconformity and the subject matter of just the murder, the sexuality, the stealing were just huge issues. And multiple times Hitchcock had to defend this film and its images. Uh, there was a huge push against the shower scene when the board insisted that they saw Janet Lee's breasts. When mm -hmm. do we see Jamie Lee's breasts? When do I see <laughs> Jamie Lee's breasts? It's addressed multiple times, even when they showed the board again, the film, those who stated that they saw a breast no longer saw a breast, but then there were then some who claimed to never see breast and now saw a breast. It was just a constant push back and forth and it was ridiculous. One of the biggest concerns mm -hmm. was the showcasing of the toilet and the toilet flushing, which up to this point in American cinema and television was never shown on mainstream airways. Mm -hmm. Which I found fascinating. I, I've known this for years about this movie. 
because I'm full of useless knowledge. That's so upsetting. <laughs> I, the fact that one, that Twilight was never shown on film or television up until this point baffles me. And I, I don't understand why like unnatural bodily function was so taboo. But I love that this was like a huge deal for them. And it's part and it's part of the plot point because Marion rips up something. Oh, sorry, it was the the figures of the money that she owed, rips it up and throws it in the toilet and flushes it down. So it's an actual part in the script. It's a main plot point. Joseph Stefano wrote that on purpose because he was tired of not seeing toilets oh my God. ever on, in, the, in the mainstream. So he wrote it into the script as an integral part of the plot in order to make sure that the MPAA couldn't say anything. I agree. I've had it. And I'm so, you know what I've had? It. It. That's awesome. Uh, for its release, marketing became a huge component. Hitchcock initiated a, quote, not late admission policy for the film on its release to both generate word of mouth and publicity, but also to ensure people never entered the theater late. At first, theaters opposed these rules and designs, but it quickly changed when the marketing brought in lines of people waiting to eagerly view the film. Of course, of course, if you're going to market this film as you have to arrive one time, nobody's going to be allowed in after the start of this movie and you have to watch it from beginning to end. This is an Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece. Of course, you're going to get people's ears perked and of course, people are going to come flocking to see this movie. It's I loved the gimmick. The gimmick works so well because they even went as far as making like uh, cut out poster boards of Alfred and him mm -hmm. telling him not to allow anyone in here, even if you're the Queen of England, yeah. even <laughs> if you're the new president of the United States. And at one point, apparently newspapers were pissed off about this. So they tried to send in like decoys and plants of like a woman stating that she was pregnant or her husband coming in and trying to get like look at my poor pregnant woman i'm sorry relate let us in and the theater the theaters knew better than to let anyone in because this was great money for them yeah so of course they're gonna allow it to do it but i love that they were like fuck you i don't give a fuck that you're pregnant get your ass out of here thank you you get no special treatment and you want a prize for fucking and I, oh. this isn't new this type of gimmicky type of way to get audience is inside but this was pretty fairly big for hitchcock it, mm. it's hitchcock <laughs> he was always trying to find ways to entice his 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 viewership and that went forward into the trailer and the promotion of the film was done mainly by Hitchcock himself, forbidding Lee and Perkins to make their usual rounds on TV and radio in fear of the plot being revealed. <laughs> I love that. No spoilers. No spoilers. We hate spoilers here. Critics were also not given private screenings and were forced to see the film with general audience, which may have hurt the film in its release as critics were pissed about this. The original trailer is Hitchcock taking the audience on a tour of the Bates set and almost giving away plot points before he stops himself. The trailer is really cute. I'm not going to put it on this week's episode because I know they'll come get my ass. <laughs> um, but uh, it's adorable. I highly suggest watching it. And I want to talk about the critics for a split sec because when this came out, people were like appalled and they didn't think this was going to do well. And they were pissed off about it. And they were trying to bring this fucking movie down that they thought that this was like below Hitchcock, that how could he come out with a movie like this? And it's mainly due to the fact that they weren't allowed to go see this movie early. Like I sometimes hate, actually, I, I really do not like critics a majority of the time mm -hmm. because a a, a critic is just someone giving their own opinion and who I don't know if my opinion is going to match up with that person but to just like trash a movie because you weren't able to get your hoity-toity early release bitch bitch I'm at the time, I'm sure these critics were used to being catered to these movies and like, oh, you get a special oh, screening cool. because you're going to praise our movie and that's what we need to gain, you know, ticket sales. But Alfred Hitchcock was not worried about ticket sales and Alfred Hitchcock 
was a filmmaker at heart, a storyteller at heart. This was his artwork. This is his life. And so he didn't give a fuck about sales or what the critics thought. He cared about his audience and he cared about preserving his story and the experience for the audience. And it, it paid off in spades. Are you ready to get down and dirty at the Bates Motel? Oh my God. Bitch? Now that we just spent an hour talking about production. Yeah. I'm ready to finally touch on that movie itself. Tis history, hunty. We open straight away with the classic Psycho soundtrack and title card, Psycho. These opening credit scenes are beautiful. They're beautiful. Mm -hmm. They're iconic. They're very stylistic mm -hmm. and I love it. And the score, like I could, I said, normally I would skip through opening credits because sometimes they just take too long, but the score is so good that I actually don't mind sitting I know, through it. It's really fucking solid. Uh, from here, we get more text, more reading. This is the third movie in a row. Uh, Phoenix, Arizona. God forbid. <laughs> no. Phoenix, Arizona, Friday, December the 11th, 2.43 p.m. We get aerial views of Phoenix, Arizona, and until we reach Marion Crane, a real estate secretary enjoying a post-coital afternoon <laughs> with her boyfriend, Sam Loomis. They discuss- A little afternoon delight. They discuss the relationship thus far, having the relationship kept secret, and whether they can move forward or not. Sam, having large amounts of debt due to his father's debt and alimony from his ex-wife, doesn't want to marry Marion. How do we feel about this opening sequence? It definitely sets the tone for the movie as it's like, we get like this camera push into their hotel room. Alfred Hitchcock was amazing in setting the tone right from the jump. We are spectators mm -hmm. on Marion Crane's life. We are watching something happen. We are getting this, we are getting this story of her love life of how she has to meet this man in secret. She does it on her lunch break in a seedy motel room. You know, it, it's giving you a lot of story without spelling it out for you. These are our favorite types of movies. This is These are the movies that we both kind of geek out over because the this scene is so important in its building of its foundation because we know from the jump that we are meant to be on board with Marion. It even sort of feels like a romantic movie. So if you imagine yeah. never once seeing this movie and coming in here blind and to, you don't know what to expect out of this film, it gives this impression of like, this love that can't be because Sam I'm guessing during this time period it's not popular or what's the proper terminology I'm looking for like divorce is still very taboo thank in this you time yes period. there we go that's what I'm looking for and this idea of debt and everyone knows that feeling I feel everyone understands that feeling of I owe money somewhere and especially in this account where Sam owes a lot of it and Marion I'm guessing is in her late 30s she's given off this impression that she wants this desperately she really wants to be with mm -hmm. sam and it's it's beautiful because if i didn't know anything this just seems like a really like good like romantic movie because sam is hot sam is yeah, thank you i was just Fine. about to touch on that Fine. sam is fucking hot he is so hot. gorgeous i um, see what the that's okay. beside the point like <laughs> i get it man i i'd steal forty thousand dollars for him too shit <laughs> <laughs> But um, yes, like you said, if we weren't already prepped with the fact that this is like a murder mystery thriller horror movie, it opens up as like this love romance story. And she's talking about how she can't stand that they, he has to go back and that they can only meet for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour on her lunch break. And it's all very secretive and she'd rather not. She wants him to come to her house and have a respectable meal with her sister and her mother's picture on the mantle. It's, 
And then he tells her, we can always turn the picture <laughs> and go have fun in the bedroom. Something along those lines. Because he's a perfect. It's just perv. very funny. It's, it is. But I love it. it. It's so sentimental because instantly as an audience member, you just want, you want her to be with him. You want her to be happy because Janet Lee is instantly likable. She has this charisma about her that you instantly fall in love with her. Plus that hair, those brows, that waist, bitch. And that like 1950s cone bra. Titty I love bra. it. I love it. I'm glad that you brought up the bra because it's very important and it is a motif in the film. She's wearing a white bra at the beginning of this movie. It's meant to give off this impression of like innocence. And th- th- mm-hmm. this is before she does some dastardly deeds. After work, she goes to her, her place of work and she has, in my opinion, a, f- a strange exchange with her fellow secretary, co-worker, who, by the way, is Alfred Hitchcock's daughter this was her cameo in oh uh, but she talked i didn't know yeah, marion talks about her headache forming and her not feeling well and her co-worker asking if she has any aspirin suggests a medication that her mother's doctor gave her on the day of her wedding they're tranquilizers it's just <laughs> it's just the the exchange is funny i really like the secretary's character because she adds these quips and adds like a really cute sense of humor in there really fast yeah it was a nice little comedic relief with her co-worker it is strange it is a little strange exchange but i like it and i love that she offers her essentially hard drugs for her headache it's the sick it's the 50s girl i'm surprised it wasn't cocaine uh. <laughs> might as well just give her a can of coke <laughs> uh she her, her co-worker informs her that her sister called the office stating she's gonna be out all weekend her boss arrives with a client who's currently buying new property for her daughter who's getting married and he's going to offer to her as a present. And he suggests that unhappiness can be bought out, which is the theme that kind of plagues her for her run throughout the movie. And he states mm-hmm. that he's paying in cold, hard, motherfucking cash, $40,000. I declare. And so he goes, stupid. well, I don't, which is why I pay in cash. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, but it's Blair Sinclair's poppy. He's buying it for her wedding. Ooh, I do <laughs> declare. Blair Sinclair. Is, uh, uh, adjusted for inflation, you said it was how much? $360,000. And he's carrying this shit in his pocket because he states, I don't carry nothing around that I can't lose. So this yeah. is change for him. And it, I like it because it's meant to be like an, a, a gross, like, exposure of this guy just like wandering his money around he's gross he even hits on her at one point mm-hmm. and and he, then he essentially exposes her boss too he's like where's that bottle you said you had in your drawer and the boss just like like shut up but marion is asked by her boss to deposit the money to the bank so it could thus be turned into a check she has to leave early and go home after the bank due to her headache uh, obviously the boss doesn't want to keep that much uh, cash, on cash hand. in the office in the overnight, he said, over the weekend. Um, so in another exchange with her coworker who asks if she wants the pills, aren't you going to take the pills? I'll knock that headache out. And she goes, you can't buy off unhappiness with pills. I beg to differ. <laughs> so she returns. <laughs> Talk to my doctor, honey. We've got a different story. <laughs> uh, so she returns home and immediately starts packing a bag because she sees this as an opportunity. As her opportunity, this money can buy her happiness. She can use the money to get her man out of debt and they can finally start their lives together. And it's beautifully executed. And I cannot really honestly overstate that because she doesn't say a word. She doesn't say a single 
word, but you know what she's feeling. And it's one of those really cool situations that can put the audience in the character's shoes. Because if you were given in a bag this shit ton of money and the opportunity to run off with it, I do not doubt that normal people, sweet normal people who were put in a place where they need it, would run off with that. I do not doubt Absolutely. it. Especially like if this movie were made today, this movie would still be effective today because a lot of, there's such a huge gap between the top 1% and everybody else. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, if this movie was made today and somebody was in that same situation, they would absolutely take the money. And that that's what creates like such an interesting dynamic. It's re It's for me during this time period, there are really complex characters. There's still very complex characters from like the fifties to the sixties. But for me, and when I first like absorbed this movie, I was not expecting this type of like dynamic and development from a character fast. This is within like the first 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this time period was willing to go there because this becomes a gray area. This becomes an unsettling area of anyone in this position would do it. And it's still wrong. She's still committing a quote unquote sin. And that's what causes her demise later on. It's mm -hmm. one of the horror movie like meccas, like just don't commit a sin and you won't die. But this <laughs> yeah. is what she's doing and it, it's, it's beautifully put because she's getting ready. She's putting her clothes on. And at this point she's wearing a black bra. It's in her brain that she's committing this crime. She knows what she's going to do. But there's an excellent shot of her looking at herself in the mirror. And in that split second, you can see her make that decision. And she packs that money, packs all she can, and makes a fucking dart for Sam, who lives in Fairville, California. And so as she's making her way to Fairville, California, she gets stopped at a stop site. While at a stoplight, she imagines what her interaction with Sam would be like. While stressing, she's spotted by her boss and she panics. He doesn't make much of the quick interaction, but Marion pushes onward. And it's a great scene. This this small, like, it's not a split second. It's probably like 45 seconds to a minute, this scene. But she's already made the decision. She's got her backpack. She's got the money. She's in her car, ready to head out. And she's at the stoplight. And of course, of all people to walk by is her boss and the client that he's trying to win over. <laughs> and she totally gives herself away because she, like, she like waves and smiles to like play it off and then immediately just like realizes what she did all over her face that like I stole money from you and I'm making this get away and her boss is able to read it completely on her face because he tries to walk away and shrug it off and he realizes something's off not right mm -hmm. yeah and she immediately like just bolts after the light turns green and makes her way onward Marion is the worst thief she is a thief who is a thief by association and place and time because it, the rest of her trip she makes mistake after mistake after mistake as anybody would who would never planned on doing anything like this and that's mm -hmm. why i love her character so much and i think janet lee does an excellent job of portraying this because she really doesn't have a lot of dialogue she has dialogue but during these moments especially in the car just you could the, the feeling of her going through each step it's like it, as a viewer, you are so enthralled. You are so in it because it, you would do the same thing. You would do the yeah. same. I very much so it's like she's reacting the way anybody yeah. who's never done this before would react. She's in the car. She's overthinking everything that she did. Oh my God, what's my boss going to say? He found out. He knows what's happening. Every, she's just, I feel like it's going a mile a minute and you get this 
um, ADR dialogue over it where she's going through these scenarios in her head where and it's supposed to put you in her head and get you in her shoes and give you the sense of what she's going through. Because she drives all night stressfully and exhausted and she eventually does pull to the side of the road and isn't awakened until the next day by California Highway Patrolman. And she panics and she tries to evade the patrolman but unfortunately she cannot hide anything. Marion is... She wears her emotions on her sleeve, and as she pulls away, due to her suspicious activity, he follows her. And I really want to talk about this scene because it is so strange to see this police interaction. It's not strange because this has been happening forever, but to see this interaction of a policeman, especially with the framing of how we view police now, it's mm -hmm. because Alfred was famously terrified of cops. Apparently, he had a big fear due to some traumatic event in his childhood, and mm -hmm the camera angles placed on this policeman are so intense. They're so tight. They're very mm -hmm. focused. And he is so stern when he is on that screen. And it just creates this horrible sense of anxiety that makes me uncomfortable and really play. I'm terrified of police. I'm not afraid to say it. So yeah. like this scene is it's so tense. And all it is is just a cop checking her plates. That's really interesting. I never I never heard I, I never heard that Hitchcock was afraid of cops. And so having you said that and and dissecting this scene, it really makes a lot of sense because you're right. They do they the scene, they shoot the officer in a completely different way that they shoot Marion. Yes, he takes do. up the entire screen. It's very close up on him. It's a hard focus. He's got his shades on, he's got his hat on. You can't read his face it's whatsoever. It's so devoid of emotion it's devoid of emotion and it's very dry and he's asking her and it it's essentially like uh an interview almost like he's asking her all he's these questions after question after yeah he's hounding her he wants to know why she pulled over immediately he just like he knows something's up with her for whatever reason and he's trying to like pull it out of her and obviously she's a horrible liar and it's horrible you can read it all over her face and she's stuttering just to get through this interaction with the cop but it, i'm Wow, you just blew my mind with the fact that Hitchcock was uh, afraid of cops because that scene makes complete like, sense now, right? I feel like the, this was my lens before and now this is my lens. It blew like, it's up. Just open. Yeah. It, it creates just this interesting dynamic and look at like, because as an audience member, you don't want her to get caught. So where does that place no. you on this side of like <laughs> duality and righteousness? Where does yeah. that place you? Because you identify with her. You don't want her to get caught. You want her to make a getaway. So that really creates this like internal like feeling of like it makes you question your morals almost thank you it makes you question your morals and that's what this if you want to go down deeper this that's what this movie is about it's about morals and sins and repercussions and, and, and just its relationship to each other uh but i'm glad that that opened up for you because it, that scene instantly it makes me uncomfortable with the way that they portray that cop so she wakes up and she decides to make a dash and a plan. She has to figure something out. Marion decides to stop at an automobile dealership where the cop pulls up and decides to just camp out and watch, which is a total fucking dick cop move. I've seen it done before. I hate when mm -hmm. they do shit like this, but even while trying to push the salesman for a quick switch of her car, the salesman can really notice her strange behavior. She's not good about it. She doesn't care. She just wants a car. She wants to change the license plate. Uh, by the way, this, the salesman's name is California Charlie, and I just felt like that was great, and I had to put that in there. <laughs> was it really? I didn't even yes, notice. it was. He offers her he offers her an exchange of her car with an additional seven hundred dollars for a new one. Without thinking, she 
immediately does it and she goes into the bathroom to go through her cash and everybody knows that this is just strange she's not a good thief she's a horrible criminal <laughs> she really is but i love all these these subtle things that push the story forward so she pulls into the dealership and the guy comes out he's like i'll be right with you and so she gets out of the car she starts um eyeing the cars over alfred hitchcock puts you in the point of view of marion and he's scanning over the cars and obviously she's looking at the license plates and she needs one with california license plate so that way she can make a clean getaway so that way she can get hopefully get this cop off of her ass and so the, the dealership man comes out and he tells her you know i don't want any trouble today and she's confused and he said you know the first customer of the day is always trouble and she goes, well, I just want to trade in my car. I just need a new one. And he goes, oh, but you're sick of the sight of it. And she goes, yeah, you sure, know, sure, just, sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure, whatever. Just give me a fucking car. <laughs> and so, and then he, whatever, she sees one that she likes. She wants to take it. And he goes, you don't want a test driver. She goes, no, I just want to get out of here. And he's like, that's the first time a you know customers ever high pressured the salesman. Yeah. And so all these little things are just you know throwing not only the police officer off, but they're throwing off the salesman. And it, it obviously like it, it's a little blip on his radar, like. Mm, something is not, right. not right here and it they're excellent just like acting cues and directive cues that just it feels like a jenga and you don't know where the jenga is going it's just these yeah. constant building blocks that you keep adding and adding and honestly it's agonizing i want her to get out of here by the way this is the only location set that they did for the home movie because alfred hated location shoots he preferred <laughs> a studio setting of course where you can control everything that makes sense exactly but while she's leaving with her new car she's horrible she forgets her luggage they stop her the cop notices it's just a big mess as she's leaving and honestly you just want to put your head down as like it yeah happens you're just like fuck she's, she's so eager to get out of there she leaves her luggage behind and it's a hot poopoo mess and after she leaves the cop makes his way to the dealership as she pulls out and as she's driving away marion's mind wanders and races and she plays out every scenario she can imagine um her work calling to discuss her absence the conversation with the dealer uh, the man at the dealership and the cop uh her sister panicking about her disappearance she runs through how anyone could suspect marion how she'd worked for a boss 10 years and she'd never do anything criminal up, up until this point which is the and only time she smiles while she's freaking out. Did you pick up on that? It's such, I don't know if I it is the most beautiful, like small little way of like Marion expressing. She's like, hmm, I'm that bitch. I did it. They would <laughs> never suspect Marion. And it only happens once. And it's the only time in the whole sequence of her stealing the money that she's happy. The rest of the time she's freaking out and anxious as shit. As anybody would be stealing that amount of money. While she's going, while she's driving, there is just a torrential downpour of rain. She cannot see the road. She's swerving. She's got to pull off somewhere. And she pulls off into a hotel for the night. The infamous, the iconic Bates Motel. And it's, I still get giddy every time they showcase like the, the sign. I, I love mm -hmm. looking at it. Uh, so as Mary pulls up to the motel, she looks up to the house overlooking the motel as the silhouette of a woman in the upstairs bedroom walks past. Marion is greeted by Norman Bates, who runs to the motel, and he states that they have 12 rooms, 12 vacancies, due to the main highway moving and the business essentially losing its trade. So this is our first introduction to Norman. And he's... What do you think? What do you make? What do you make of his first introduction as he runs down from his hotel, for, excuse me, from his home and comes down to check Mary into the hotel. It's definitely a subversion. Like the first time you meet Norman, 
I don't think you're really meant to think anything of it except for the mm-hmm. fact that he's a sweet boy. I love Anthony Perkins, who everybody calls Tony in any like behind the scenes stuff that I watched. And I think it's adorable. Really? Yeah, they, everybody called him Tony. Uh, but Anthony Perkins is a wonderful. He's just like, he's in a wonderful actor. And what he does in this opening scene is the best bait and switch. Like, honestly. Mm-hmm. Because when mm-hmm. you first meet Norman, you just, you don't think anything about it. You're still with Marion. Like the narrative hasn't switched yet. We're still yeah. fully on board with her. So t- to us, this is just another thing that she's going to like the dealership. It's just another obstacle in her way. Right. How did you Absolutely. feel? Absolutely. I, I kind of felt the same way mm-hmm. on a first watch. You, because at this point she's just trying to get to Fairvale. She's trying to get to her boyfriend. And that's what the audience wants. Everybody mm-hmm. wants her to make it to her boyfriend and finally get away with this. And this is already her second obstacle now, or rather third. And so everybody just wants her to make it past this motel so she can get to Fairvale. Because it, Norman reveals that she's like 15 miles away from Fairvale. So right. she's right, she's right there. So this is where she just, she wants to spend the night so that way she can make it back to her boyfriend the next day fully refreshed and ready to f- and <laughs> ready to f- you're awful checking into the motel marion signs a guest book with marie samuels stating that she's from los angeles and norman gives her cabin one to be closer to the office in case she needs anything norman invites marion to have dinner with himself and his mother nothing fancy just sandwiches and she accepts as marion unpacks and plans she takes the rest of her money and wraps it in the newspaper she purchased at the car dealership while here overhearing an argument between norman and mother about supper where mother discusses honestly just her disgust for marion and the idea of bringing a woman into the home instead norman brings the food down and they eat in the motel parlor so the all of these things are so subtle especially with marion folding the newspaper her getting in her day we're getting the setup of like the hotel and its dynamics and norman and his mother this is our first introduction to mother how do you feel Mm. about your first introduction to mother because all you do is hear her i mean a majority of the time you hear her yeah for the almost the entire movie we only really hear her and see like a silhouette or the shape of her Mm -hmm. um i like that you brought up all these subtleties and nuances about how he says that they don't get any um, people anymore because the main highway has been moved. Um, And then even when he brings her to her room, he opens up the windows to bring in some fresh air because it's stuffy because nobody's been there so long. And so it's because that the windows are open that Marion's able to hear the conversation with mother and Norman hearing about how essentially she doesn't want this woman in her house. Um, And so that just lays a little bit of the groundwork for who this character of quote unquote mother is. Mm -hmm. She's clearly like obsessive and controlling. Yeah. Thank you. Obsessive and controlling mother who doesn't want another woman in her house. Obviously she feels threatened or feels some type of way about some, some other woman in her house. How dare you Norman? And so instead they have to like have their sandwiches in the parlor room, which is filled with taxidermy animals. So before we go into the taxidermy animals, I want to talk about just this. I think it's excellent and so important that we never see Mother. Yes, we get our silhouettes later and it like creates this new stuff. But your first impression of Mother is just her voice and the the voice acting from Virginia Greggs who does it. As an audience member, you immediately project your own image of whatever you want onto mother. And I think that's an Mm. excellent way to keep influencing your audience because then the audience can depict mother however they want to. She could be as grotesque, as simple, or as mean as they want her to be. And I think that makes your character Mm. scarier instead of just giving us like 
some weird way of showing mother. Absolutely. It, it, Show, don't tell. It gives the audience, a, yeah, thank you. It just gives the audience something to play with in the meantime until we get the final full reveal, which is gag Honestly, while inside the parlor, and this is one of my favorite scenes. It's actually also one of the longest dialogue scenes in the whole film. And it is- mm-hmm a really good showcase of two actors just like doing their fucking thing because they're both really excellent. They discuss his unique hobby of stuffing animals, particularly birds, due to their passiveness. Uh, the two then discuss his social life and his mother, quote, saying, a boy's best friend is his mother. And also <laughs> talking about each other's own idea of private traps and being clamped in them and none of us ever being able to get out. And they're both talking and not talking about their own internalized traps, including Norman's mother, who is mentally ill and forbids him to leave her. Talking about how mm-hmm. they came to both the motel, and they bought this motel with this guy. We, that's all we know. Marion mm-hmm. oversteps her boundary by suggesting that Norman put his mother in an institution. And this is when we get our first real impression of what's behind the mask. And this, of course, ticks off Norman and stating that he can't leave her mother and that not mother is really not that bad. So this scene is my favorite, and it is an excellent showcase of both Alfred's weird obsession with food, because during this time, Marion's eating sandwiches, and I think it's supposed to indicate, like, her committing this, like, sin of gluttony, because she said she wasn't hungry, and her absorbing all of the sin is also, like, physically in the form of her absorbing the sandwich that Norman made Mm -hmm. her. But this scene breaks my heart when it comes to Anthony Perkins. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. Because he talks about this, he goes on an excellent monologue about people being trapped in their own cages and their mm-hmm. own types of private traps. And it's so heart-wrenching to to know that during this time period, gay wasn't even a word. We didn't even utilize it towards actors like this. And he was famously in a lot of relationships with uh same-sex partnerships. And I feel like it's really showcased in this monologue because I feel so much for Norman. And that's the point. As an audience member, you're meant to be like, oh God, this poor guy. Like, get the fuck mm-hmm. out of there. But like to look at it now with Norman, it just adds another layer for me that I wasn't expecting this watch around. Yeah, it. I feel like Norman definitely, excuse me, Anthony Perkins definitely used his own real life experiences and channeled it through the character of Norman Bates Um, because like you said it's a very in my eyes a very intimate conversation amongst these two people who just barely met who don't know each other exactly so the fact that Norman Bates opened up so quickly to this complete stranger that he found just shows how disconnected he is from the rest of the world and the fact that he doesn't have anybody else to talk to. The things that they talk about are so personal and so like heart-wrenching that it's almost like it uh, clearly throws you off because this movie has been setting you up for something different and all of a sudden we have this very intimate moment between these two people and then this intimate moment is almost abruptly stopped when Marion gives her opinion on Norman's um, mother, mother. Mm-hmm. correct and it automatically almost like flips a switch almost mm-hmm. or it, yeah it, it makes Norman tick a little like oh mm-hmm. like that that thing set him off that's when he goes to defend his mother and we get the infamous line of she just goes a little mad sometimes we all go a little mad sometimes 
And just like, what? Like, if I were having a conversation with a total stranger and we were having this intimate conversation and this and is then what came out of his mouth, said some weird shit like this, I would <laughs> get up and leave. I wouldn't even have stayed at that motel, bitch. I would have driven the extra couple miles oh, to Fairville. No. It's, it's so good because Marion sympathizes with Norman she feels bad for Norman and then she gets scared of Norman and it's also told in the direction of which they film this there's points where the camera angle is more above Marion so she's below Norman and then that Mm -hmm. directive of the camera angles keeps switching as the dialogue goes along to showcase Norman's asserting his dominance Marion's asserting her dominance because it's talked about multiple times that Marion is demasculating him or she is asserting herself in a way that a woman shouldn't shouldn't mm-hmm. period and it's so excellent to see these two go at it and marion through this conversation realizes i don't want to be like you fool i do not want to <laughs> be in my own trap that i can't get out of she realizes exactly. in that moment i need to give this money back that this isn't this isn't who i am and mm-hmm. you talked about it really briefly earlier that it's switched again and this movie switches so quickly and so fast we started as a romance it turned into this thriller and then in my opinion when i first watched it i thought at the beginning of their conversation they were trying to project this like narrative of like could she be with norman does she yeah like a new love interest a new love interest and then when norman snaps of course that changes but like all of this has been building to this right here and Marion decides I'm going to go back like I can't do this without ever actually saying it as an audience Mm -hmm. member you either pick up on it or you don't exactly just like when she makes the decision to take the money you either Mm -hmm. pick on it pick up on it or you don't so through this conversation with Norman she realizes that she's done something horrible (laughs) and that she needs like she can't she can't just leave her she can't just like leave all her problems behind that's not how life works Mm -hmm. and so she makes a decision in her head that she's got to go back to arizona and give this money back and make things right she can still make it they think they the bank opens on monday she could easily get away with it Mm -hmm. so she decides she'll drive back to phoenix in the morning and to return that money so she goes back to her room where we get our first lover of norman being classic norman's elf Norman uses a secret peephole that's built into the parlor that's attached to the cabin and spies on Marion as she undresses with a black bra, I might add. Mm, look at that mm, subtlety. So racy. So racy. But you, you're you given two forms of vision, which is great. We use that lens to its advantage. and We get the peeping Tom shot, which mm-hmm. puts the, the viewer in the killer's POV, which I'm sure fucked with a lot of people during this time period yeah to get like a shot through a peephole had to have really put people on edge Mm -hmm. because it just keeps building while she's undressing we then move on to the probably film's most iconic death period t tina like it's easily number one everywhere we get our infamous shower scene this is a huge like this is a, a very important scene not only in this movie but as a part of film history, this is an important scene. 
While showering away, Marion is approached by a shadowy figure. The curtains are quickly pulled back as the woman figure continues to stab Marion over and over again and leaves her to bleed to death. Marion grabs the shower curtain as her blood rushes down the drain and she dies as we hear a running shower over a pull-out shot of her eye. To reveal her unleft wad of cash sits bundled in a newspaper by her bedside. Talented, brilliant. That is a quick rundown of quick. the shower scene because this shower scene lasts, I want to say, a good three to five Maybe minutes. Four minutes. Yeah, about that time range. Because she gets in the shower, she rips up, she had done some quick math on a piece of paper to s- figure out how much money she owed back because obviously she bought the car, she borrowed $700 from to the money the car. To, to buy the car. So she does the quick math and she rips it up, throws in the toilet, in the toilet and flushes it down, which is where we get our first ever shot of a toilet. Ooh, how exciting. This is where she uh, continues to get in the shower. And so she gets in the shower and she starts lathering herself up. And this is, at least in my opinion, she has a change of mood when she's in the shower. She's showering and she feels like she's getting all of that sin off of her. She's washing herself clean. Thank you. And yes. Yes. That is exactly she, what the, this is. This is a turning point for her. She's decided to change it. She can still recover from this. And so she's who showering she herself clean. No. It's, it's essentially a baptism. She's cleansing herself of her sins, if you really want to get like film theory. It's mm-hmm. it's her dipping herself into this baptism water to cleanse herself of that sin that she's had. And you're right. She looks ecstatic. She understands that, you know what? I can wait for Sam. I don't have to do this. I'm a good person, which is why like we really cannot understate the rug that was pulled on <laughs> like film history with this movie because then we get this reverse shot of her in the shower where you see the shower curtain behind her and in the bathroom you see this dark shadowy figure make its way into the bathroom and she's she's unknown she doesn't know because she has her back to it and she's sitting there showering up and this shadowy figure gets closer and closer and you see that the shadowy figure has a knife and then in comes our iconic score and that person just pulls open the shower curtain and we get our infamous shower scene kill shot each shot is meant to be that knife and it's visceral i know he doesn't show anything but your brain comes up with everything else for this movie and that's why it is so fucking effective this is why it's iconic everything everything in this scene that only goes for three to four minutes is ingrained in pop culture forever because of how Mm -hmm. well constructed and what it meant and what it did. Because Janet Lee was the main poster. This is maybe a quarter of the movie. From here, it literally just goes downhill. Like everything just starts going off the rails. But the audience was fully enamored with her story. And then all of a sudden you just you kill her off the audience doesn't know doesn't know where to go we no longer have someone that we follow which is why that long take and that shot of her pulling out in the eye is quiet because the audience is still trying to understand what just happened but it's changing the directive we literally pull from her eye which is her perspective that we followed thus far and follow the money we follow where that story is going because it turns out she's not the main character and i could not believe the gag of the century that that was honey you've got a big storm coming what? You just killed off your main character about, what, maybe an hour in the movie? Maybe a little less? I would say 40 minutes, maybe. You just killed off the main character. The main character that you just sent 40 minutes setting up, 
making us sympathize for, totally feeling for. We went through this emotional roller coaster with this woman. Now you just decide to kill her? Mm-hmm. Who the mm-hmm. fuck? Who? What? Huh? This it, is in 1960. I can only imagine how gagged the audiences were that he killed off the main character in a bloody shower scene. And one of the best death scenes, period, T Tina. It's it's beautifully constructed, and I don't want to stay too long on it because you can watch a fucking documentary on it if you want. To. <laughs> yeah. But this movie, because of its voyeurism and its slasher effects, yes, Peeping Tom is the first one to do it. But this one brought it to the mainstream. This was brought to the general audiences, and this elevated this idea of like beneath film horror, which was thus at the time just deemed as like campy delinquent films were horror. Mm-hmm. And here came Alfred Hitchcock, this well-renowned director who elevated it to this whole new genre. And who made it cinema, darling. Made it cinema, darling. Without it, we probably wouldn't have our slasher genre, quite honestly. Yes, Peeping Tom started it, but Psycho made it relevant. Oh my God, time and place. We shoot to Norman, who then discovers mother, apparently. All we get is this is voiceover. She's covered in blood and he runs to Marion's room and discovers everything. And the rest of the sequence is done in silence, which just adds like another eerie factor. But he cleans up the crime scene and he carries her corpse in the shower curtain and places her in the trunk of her car, throws everything in the car and he throws it in their swamp, which sinks and has a wonderful, excellent little pause. As the car is sinking, the car stops and the audience is meant to be <laughs> fuck how is he going to get away with this because norman watches while eating candy corn and then it sinks to the bottom and it's this is our switching of our narratives it turns out mm-hmm. we're not here for marion crane we're here for norman this mm-hmm. is who we're following throughout the movie and just norman's calmness during all of <laughs> this cleaning is disturbing even for 1960 it's eerie like this is like the it's like this isn't the first time he's done it. No. And so really quickly, just going back. Uh, so Norman discovers the body because all you hear is a voiceover from the house. All you hear is mother. Oh God, mother, blood, blood. It's almost a little cheesy, to be honest. Uh, he makes his way down to the, to the motel room. And this this is what I like. So we, we kind of glazed over this because we gave it a quick rundown. He makes his way back to the room. And when he discovers Marion's body, he's shocked. He... He runs back into the room and he covers his mouth and he just like, he can't believe what just happened to Marion. He was just talking to her. He obviously liked her. They just had dinner and his mother just did the most horrendous thing and he's shocked. But he only mourns and for like a second and then he immediately like goes into mode, disposes of the body and unknowingly disposes of the money as well which is driving everyone right now. This idea of greed is what drives this whole plot point. Exactly. And as you said, he disposes of the of the car in their local swamp because every town's got a swamp, apparently. Sure, why not? That's right next to the hotel. Sure, of course, we love that. What are you doing in my swamp? But I love that you you mentioned the fact that he sits there so calmly just watching the, the car sink to the bottom of the swamp and while eating candy corn of all things and it's very strange and like i said i'm gonna bring it up again it's almost this childlike quality where he's kind of disconnected at the moment and he's just sitting there eating his candy watching this car with a dead body sink to the bottom of the swamp and i think that's what that candy corn is meant to represent it's meant to represent that because of what he witnessed he's now like 
deterred into this like childlike state where mother could do no wrong and I just have to be there for mother because that's been their mm-hmm. relationship. From what we know up to this point, it's clearly a volatile and d- disturbing relationship that they have, but it's so eerie to watch someone just react that way due to like, it's just wild. It's wild. And I love it because it's silent. I love when things are shown to me and not told to me. And it, we move on from there. The story decides, okay, we killed her. We're moving. And <laughs> you either keep up or just, sorry, sis. <laughs> yeah, essentially. <laughs> so we move on to a week later and Sam is writing a letter to Marion and it goes as stated. Saturday. Dearest, write as always, Marion. I'm sitting in this tiny back room, which isn't big enough for both of us, and suddenly it looks big enough for both of us. So what if we're poor and cramped and miserable? At least we'll be happy. If you haven't come to your senses, and still... The letter ends, because the camera pans out, so we never... Uh Uh-huh. But I I think it's... What a straight man response of, like, I can't provide for you, and we're going to be fucking horrible, (laughs) but at least we can fuck. (laughs) It's kind of sweet, though. And so while A little too late... So while he's writing, Marion's sister Lila arrives to confront Sam. Private investigator Arbogast approaches both, having been hired to find the $40,000, stating, Marion's not being prosecuted, the family just wants the money. And Lila believes Marion is with Sam, with Arbogast believes they're all involved. Arbogast then surveys and questions the townspeople, which leads him to the Bates Motel. Arbogast questions Norman, who stammers and offers inconsistent answers, talking about how no one comes by but lies about a couple staying at the motel, which is a very important scene, I feel like. So Arbogast, who's this private investigator who was hired by Marion's boss to find the missing $40,000 that Marion stole, finally, like, followed Marion's horrible paper trail I know. to this town so and easily. to the motel. If yeah. she didn't die, he would have found her in, like, a day. <laughs> right? Yeah, she's a horrible, horrible criminal. He finally makes his way to the Bates Motel, and he starts questioning Norman, who's obviously nervous. And just like Marion, he's a horrible liar and totally stumbles through this investigation. And Arbogast ends up real, like figuring out that Marion did stay there and she stayed under a pseudonym. And so there's a couple of things we need to address here. I want to address the conversation between Arbogast and Norman because it wasn't written in the script apparently, but Perkins decided to add in this idea of a stutter. And I think it plays beautifully to that childlike quality that we kept talking about because to me it's exactly how a kid responds when faced with authority and being questioned for something they did that they know they shouldn't have done he responds Mm -hmm. in this like innocent manner and honestly it's just very creepy because up to this point he's as far as we believe he's protecting mother and it just this idea of this relationship that is so built in that and his willingness to do it, but know that he's not supposed to just like creates like this character development for Norman that just, I still sympathize with him. It's, it's, it's wild. Yeah. It's a wild ride to say the least up until this point, it clearly stems from this toxic relationship that he has with his mother. Uh, I also want to address Sam and Lila because everyone is confused. No one knows what's happening. Lila thinks that Sam's involved. Sam doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Arbogast thinks they're both involved. And Mm -hmm. I I feel so bad for Lila as a character because all she wants to do is just find her sister. And she confronts Sam Mm -hmm. with that. She even states, I don't care if you have the money. I don't care if you guys are in cahoots. I just want to know she's okay. And it creates more of an element of like this need 
for the audience to be like, we know what's going on. And I feel so bad for these characters because they're about to find out. Very true. Also, like how white, they're like, I don't care. Just give me my money. Boom. There we go. Examining Norman and wanting to check the grounds, Arbogast sees Mother in the window and questions if Norman is hiding Marion. Wanting to meet Mother, Arbogast pushes to see her. Going to a payphone, Arbogast updates Sam and Lila about his search and promises to contact them in an hour. So essentially, Arbogast realizes there's somebody else in the house and he calls to update Sam and Lila saying that he's figured something out and he's going to let them know more. He states, and it's very important, that he's going to question Mother. And that is an important plot point later on. So, going back to investigate, Arbogast pokes around the estate to discover what he can. Eventually, he makes his way up to the Gothic mansion atop the hill to try and talk to Mother. Arbogast just fucking lets himself in and makes his way up the staircase when a figure quickly appears out of the hallway and stabs him as he falls down the stairs and then the figure begins to stab him to death and we cut to our next scene. This death is so fast! It, it's one of the only quick deaths I feel like we, mm-hmm. that we get. And rightfully so. Like, get him in, get him out. He shouldn't have let himself in the house. And bitch, I, you got your comeuppance. Where's your warrant? Where's your warrant, bitch? I want to see the search warrant. <laughs> I So this scene has to be stated just because the only thing that I feel like doesn't really work anymore for me from this 1960s production is the falling is down effect. the stairs scene. Yeah, <laughs> this effect is just like the cheesiest part for me. But I understand why they did it. But it's it's another bait and switch because this mother for me looks bigger than the mother that was in the bathroom that killed Marion. So it's con- it's mm-hmm. constantly meant to be like a who done it sort of thing. And it's yeah. I think it's cool. I think it's fucking rad because you think that the narrative switching again to Arborgast and then they just pull him out of it again. This <laughs> is like nope, does not just care about you or your feelings. I- They said, fuck you and everything you think you know. So hours pass, and when Lila and Sam hear nothing from Arbogast, Sam visits the motel. He notices a woman in the house, but heads back. And worried about not hearing a thing, Lila and Sam contact the local deputy sheriff. While talking about a Mrs. Bates and an argument about Arbogast's true motives, he reveals that Norman Bates' mother has been dead for the past 10 years. She died in a murder-suicide, apparently a poisoning from Norman's mother to her lover after she found out he had a wife. Norman supposedly found the bodies in bed together, discussing their stories. They know something is not right and wonder whose body is buried in their cemetery. What? I love this because it's dropped. So you, this script is so good because you have to pay attention because it's dropped and you're just like, what? Because it's also stated that Norman had essentially a mental breakdown and all of this transpired. And it's so slick because you think mother is real and from this point you're just who is mother and yeah you're wondering what who that is who are you people it's it's beautifully told i love that this is all told through a monologue i think that using the sheriff as that showcase is another point for hitchcock and his fear of like authority figures like cops because the mm-hmm. sheriff is kind of fucking useless because he talks about this and then the next much day like all, all sheriffs much like all sheriffs because then they also address him at the church in a later scene and he's also useless there he doesn't believe anything <laughs> much like the cops so i just think that's such an interesting commentary that he still keeps putting into his movie i love it so norman now worried about the suspicion towards his mother he decides to try and hide mother in the fruit cellar and she even responds with huh you think i'm fruity and it's my favorite line. <laughs> After an argument, he carries his mother from her bedroom and hides her in the cellar. I think that line is great because we all know Anthony Perkins is a little bit of a fruit. So I think 
<laughs> I love it. And I love this scene because so we get like an overhead shot of the scene of him, of Norman carrying mother from her bedroom down to the cellar. And it's an overhead shot and you can't see her face or anything. You just see Anthony Perkins carrying a figure Thing. down the stairs to the cellar. And so it's still like to this point, the audience still doesn't know. You're so in the dark. You're so in the dark about everything. And you're just trying to hold on. Uh, the next mm-hmm. day, Lila and Sam meet up with the sheriff as he discusses the fact that Marion may have just run off. He's such an asshole. He's He just thinks everyone's in it. He also thinks Arbogast just, like, found her and then took the money and ran. Is uh... So Lila, still not feeling well about the situation, convinces Sam to visit the motel. They come up with an alias as a married couple checking in the cabin as an excuse to search the motel. And this is where things just start. Things are so tense for me in this moment because they're going under disguise and you you want them to find something. And even Lila addresses, she's like, we may not be happy with what we find. And it's as an audience member, it's so cool because you believe that you know everything that's been going on because you've been witnessing from afar and you witnessed her death. So you think that you know what's going on. And as it keeps building, I question, I would question everything. I wouldn't know shit. I would. I'm going to tell you what I don't do. I don't know shit. I don't get stuff. And I don't understand things. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I love this. I love that they're they're finally like taking matters in their own hands and they put up this front as a couple who wants to check into the hotel. And uh, I'm sorry, Sam is his name, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, Sam pretends to be Lila's boyfriend or husband or whatever it is. And he says that they want to check into a hotel room and he tells Norman, I like, and we need to sign it. And he's like, oh, but there's no need for, ma- for formalities. He's like, no, this is a business trip. My boss wants receipts practically notarized. I think I should sign in. And so he signs in. That's where he gets to see like Marianne has signed in, but under an alias. And it's just smart. All these little things are smart. Even um, Lila says, oh, I'm going to go ahead to check out, to go ahead and go into the room. But instead what she's really doing is she's making her way around the motel to see if she can find anything. And she eventually makes her way to the back of the motel where she sees the house upstairs. And it's so they know that they're on to something. Norman is not right. He's evade. He's evading questions. He's he's just inconsistent. So the suit mm-hmm. do decide to check on Marion's old hotel room because it states that Mary checked into room one. So mm-hmm. noticing once they make their way into that room, they notice that there's no shower curtains. And this is where we discover the old piece of paper that was left in the toilet, which is significant in the fact that. Marion wrote on it, so it means that she was here. And that's all they need as evidence to keep checking. So wanting more information, they split up so that way Lila can try and find Mother and question her while Sam can distract Norman. And it's... Huh, tension's raising, it hurts. And we also get a funny ass line in my opinion, because when they split up, Sam goes left, Lila goes right to try and go behind the hotel. But he finds Norman and Norman's like, you looking for me? And Sam responds with, well, yes, matter of fact, wife's taking a nap and I can never quite, I I can never keep quiet enough for her. So I thought I'd look you up and talk. I was just like, gay, gay. I love all the subtle gay subtext. Cruising. But while searching the home, Lila discovers clothes and a vanity, also scaring herself with mirrors in the process, and an indent in Mother's Bed suggesting that it's been used. She also finds an unlabeled book that causes quite the reaction from her. What do you think was in that book? Nudes. So apparently, 
in the book, Norman was really into some sadistic, sexual, cannibalistic stuff. And he would Ooh. read about it all the time in his library. So that's what's supposed to be suggested here. And that's why I like it. It's another use of suggestion from Hitchcock because you can place anything that you want, that you deem as disturbing in that book without having to spell anything out because it's a split second that we see it. But it's, it's just, Hitchcock has been suggesting everything up into this point and this is just another example of that he gives you enough information that you understand what's going on with the story and you'll understand the plot development and the characters but he still leaves enough up for interpretation and that's what makes it worse in the audience's brain because they're imagining the fucking worst because it's Hitchcock mm -hmm. he's gonna go somewhere scary so absolutely Sam, Sam constantly just hounds Norman trying to eventually honestly, to get him to confess that he stole the $40,000 from Marion. But once Norman understands that he's being stalled, he gets agitated and knocks Sam, out, Sam unconscious with, I think, a vase. I couldn't tell. It was like a tchotchke decoration thing, but he knocks his ass out. Some sort of knickknack and knocks his ass out. Lila notices Norman approaching and heads downstairs into the cellar to hide. But when she's there, we get our big reveal. Mother is sitting in the corner alone in this dusty, creepy, only singular lit cellar uh, as she mm -hmm. turns mother around it's revealed to be a decaying corpse and she screams knocking the light bulb and as she screams norman hears this and rushes into the cellar wearing his mother's clothes and a wig and attempts to stab her quickly sam appears and subdues him and this scene is it still scares me to this day norman's reveal still like puts me back because of his intensity on his face uh mm -hmm. Anthony Perkins giving the most menacing smile in like drag and the music cues I can't we've said it enough but it just sells us to another level absolutely this is yet another iconic scene from this movie mm -hmm. um we get the infamous reveal that mother is dead and she's not even alive yeah and Norman has been playing both roles this entire time. Yay! Come on, drag queen! I know! He comes busting in in his mother's Sunday's finest with her old dusty-ass wig on and a huge butcher knife ready to give dusty, Lila her come up wig. Her shake-and-go wig. <laughs> and then comes Sam to save the day and subdues Norman. And Norman, this always stuck with me for some reason. I don't know why, but when Sam grabs Norman and tries to, like, shake him down or whatever, Norman does this, like, weird kind of... <laughs> and I know you can't see my movements on the <laughs> for those who are listening, but he does this weird kind of movement. Um, I'm which, glad you brought it I up because that was fully choreographed. So that whole fight, Sam comes in from behind on Norman and essentially pulls his arms apart to get the knife out of his hand. But it was mm -hmm. meant to be used as a sort of reveal. So when Sam approaches him and attacks him, they rip open the dress to reveal that it's Norman underneath. The wig falls and Norman slides is off. Norman is just giving like the most terrifying like scream. And like, mm -hmm. it's, it sounds like an agonizing scream. And this reveal, when I first heard about it, because I knew about Psycho, I knew the situation, but I didn't fully know about the reveal. The reveal got me. And I'm sure it got everybody who ever fucking watched it for the first mm -hmm. time, because this is, no one would have suspected this. And I know this is gonna be a touchy subject. I know this is gonna be, we're gonna have to tread lightly when discussing this reveal and this the closing scene, because some of the terminology that they use is awful and outdated and d d mm -hmm. very d d reminiscent of the time period. But I never really viewed this as a, 
I never once viewed this as Norman wanting to like be, be. a woman. It was more uh-huh. so in the terms of psychological abuse that thus traumatized this poor child to develop this way. And that mm. is where I've always viewed it. I've never once really viewed it because they use the word transvestite and they d- deem him just doing drag and all of this other stuff that is it, it, horrible. I don't like these terminologies. But how do you feel? Because sometimes this is Norman and this reveal is viewed weirdly as queer. No, I never saw this as anything queer or any sort of, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Because like you said, we have to tread lightly. Like indicative of someone's sexuality and gender. Or any sort of identity, you Mm -hmm. know, trying to find your your identity. I never viewed it that way whatsoever. I totally viewed this as, like you said, a total psychological toxic relationship type of thing. And it's it's still very much left up for interpretation whether or not oh actually no it's not so anyways i th- i just feel that this is norman's relationship with his mother and this toxic relationship that he's had with her from growing up that he doesn't know how to move on without her mm-hmm. so in his head he's kind of built this for lack of a better term split personality within himself where he's both mother and himself i never once viewed this as anything other than psychological and that's what that that's my perspective and i'm sure that other people can view it from other lenses and what they wish to because this movie i don't think was really trying to say anything about its stance on its view of homosexuality or its view on non-gender conforming individuals anything along those lines so we're gonna move forward so we can do our last thoughts at the end so we move from here after this (laughs) film cinematic review uh, reveal at the police station a psychiatrist explains that norman murdered mrs bates and her lover 10 years prior out of pure jealousy unable to cope or stand being away from her he decided to go forward i'm not going to do the full monologue you can watch the movie but essentially the main points that you should be getting out of this honestly really fantastically delivered monologue from a psychiatrist is that he was already quote, dangerously disturbed as he had been since his father died and his mother was clingy and demanding. And for years, the two of them lived together as if it was just them. Then she met this man and this ticked off Norman. And she apparently Norman felt that she threw him over in order to be with this man. And this pushed him to kill them. He was the one that murdered them. And apparently Norman couldn't deal and cope with the situation. So he had to erase the crime, at least in his own mind. So quote, he stole her corpse, a weighted coffin was buried and he hid the body in the fruit cellar, even tried to keep it as well as he could. And it was still wasn't enough. She was there, but she was a corpse. So began to think and speak for her, give her half his life, so to speak. At times he could be both personalities, carry on conversations, at other times, the mother half took over completely. He was never all Norman, but he was often only mother. And I'm going to end there on the end quote, because that's a lot to dissect right there. Mm-hmm. Whew. Okay. So we touched upon that Norman wasn't able to deal and cope with this situation, but it just, it, it's so, <laughs> I don't know how to tread lightly, except for the fact that it's very disturbing that he kept the corpse as like, pristine as possible and 
then try to develop the sense of her being there by creating her into the mind. That is mm -hmm. wild. And honestly, just like leaps and bound to what I thought something could be done in a film in 1950s to 60s. Like, this Seriously. Is, this is beyond. And even then, like, I know this is still a touchy subject because just the, even the idea of split personality, quote unquote, for back, lack of a better term, or multiple personality disorder, which is no longer the terminology. It's DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder. But mm -hmm. I could see how this could be deemed as like, a bad light on that but you gotta admit this is quite the fucking twist absolutely give even though i mean it's, it's a movie of its time so obviously mm -hmm. these terms and everything about it is quite outdated and quite offensive but like you said for the time being this is quite groundbreaking and to have someone who obviously has gone through a traumatic experience therefore not deal with this trauma and it develop into a psychological disorder which led to murder <laughs> in 1960 what are you fucking Sounds like a new me? netflix documentary like last <laughs> week that they fucking dropped like this is beyond wild it's still like it's hard to sit through this monologue because as an as an audience member you have been put through the fucking ringer up to this point, you've changed narratives, you've changed directions, you've changed genres at some points, romance, to thriller, to horror, to then to be here and then be explained to this. Originally, they were gonna try and cut this monologue because they felt like it just didn't fit, but Stefano insisted on including it. And I'm so happy that he did because this monologue is needed as a catharsis for everything that you've had to been put through up to this point. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a it's a weird showcase and it's still super popular this idea of a mother like clinging to her children we talked about it in hereditary this is a theme that everyone can understand everyone understands the idea of a relationship that's not the best with your parents and this is a great example of like talking about your problems with your family and how you feel about your family and using it in horror because we talked about that in hereditary and how it could be used to talk about trauma this is another i'm sure stefano was going through some shit i'm sure he invented he <laughs> things of his life in here i mean who doesn't right so moving on the psychiatrist explains that mother has taken over and he's no longer norman after they discuss, Norman sits alone in the office alone. While he sits, Mother talks in a voiceover. Her monologue protests that the murders were all Norman's fault. She sits and discusses how she'll showcase she'd never heard a fly. And we see a flash of Mother's corpse strike over Norman's face as Marion's car is pulled out of the swamp. We fade to black and the credits roll. Uh, this has wow. been a wild ride of a journey. Movie. And I love, I love the ending. I love the ending mm -hmm. as much as I love the rest of the movie. I think it's the um, perfect ending. I really think it's a perfect ending for this movie. Because we push in on Norman sitting alone in essentially like a jail cell. And we just get this voiceover of, like, at first we get the voiceover of the cops and they're talking about everything that happened. And they're saying how he requested a blanket because he's cold. And when the officer goes to give him the blanket, Norman says, thank you. But he says, thank you in the mother voice. And it's very unsettling, to be honest. It's very unsettling. And, and so for the rest of the, until the end of the movie, we only see Norman and it, he doesn't move. It's just a voiceover of mother's voice in his head. And she's talking about how, she, obviously, like I said, she showcased like how she's innocent. She, she wouldn't even hurt a fly. And I love the last scene where we just get this very faint crossover fade of the corpse face of mother over Norman Bates's face. 
and it's so subtle but so well done and i i just thought it was like a chef's kiss cherry on top of the cake really really is because up until this point we thought norman was sweet and then we understand that he's covering up for his mother and then it changes and you understand that he's the one that did it and then here at the end i think it's so subtle and it's excellent the fact that the police give him a blanket showcase that they still think that there's this sweetness Mm -hmm. and kindness to him and only cops would give a blanket to a white guy if he asked in a PlayStation. I'm just going to say that. Thank you. Right now. I wasn't going to say it, but Jesus you, oh, Christ. Oh, I said what I said. But <laughs> this ending monologue, is it's the perfect ending because Norman is officially gone. It's now mother. Norman doesn't exist. And to have this voiceover and then that crossover fade, just indicating to the audience that the, the, it's done. Like the deed is done and Norman's no longer here. And I love that we end on the last shot of the car. Originally, I didn't understand why. I never fully understood why. I thought it was kind of useless in my original first few rounds. But this time I get it because you need some sort of closure at the end of this. You need to know that they found her body. You need to know that they found the money. And I think it's excellent because it's two seconds and that's all you need. And as an audience member, I'm satisfied with that. I'm satisfied knowing that they found her. And I'm satisfied knowing who the murderer is. This movie's just insane it's beautiful it's beautiful crazy amazing never been done before uh, <laughs> shut up on it. She... <laughs> your final thoughts over this beautiful piece of cinema i couldn't have said it better myself it's a beautiful piece of cinema it's cinema history it's alfred hitchcock's it's alfred hitchcock and his finest in my personal opinion this mm-hmm. is my number one alfred hitchcock movie and despite it being, you know, severely outdated and as far as its terminology and its diagnosis on Norman Bates, you know, um, mental, whatever, mental health, um, it's still one of my favorites. Yeah, and I have absolutely. to give this movie a five out of five. Easy. So easy. How do you feel about, so we, I meant to ask this last episode and I totally skipped. So it's my ball. We, we use this movie as a way to discuss mothers and mm-hmm. different types of mothers. How do you feel about its portrayal of a mother in this one? I I like it. I love it, I should say. I love that we get yet another like sick, twisted mother-son relationship and how she essentially groomed Norman to be her uh, servant among things, among other things. I don't even know how to word that properly. So she essentially groomed Norman. And so when she finally moved on to a love interest, she didn't realize she'd created essentially a monster who then backfired on her. And I don't know, it's just this wild, crazy ride that just goes to show what can really blossom from a toxic relationship. I think that is excellently put. I think that is beautifully excellently put because we've talked about trauma in like the past two episodes and what it could do and what it transpires and the funny parts of it, like serial mom and this idea of like a functioning family dealing with someone's trauma, I guess, kind of. And mm-hmm. then it's it's a version of like social commentary, whatever. And then we talk about trauma and hereditary about it being passed on. And this one, in my opinion, is about how trauma can, its effects on the children and what it does and this idea of a toxic relationship that's never really played in film like these types of toxic relationships are i know i get it they're not everybody's cup of tea but the way that alfred hitchcock did it and the way that they use suggestion and their methods in which to get there and this script is why it's so 
wonderful and why I think this is such a cool depiction of a mother for our Mother's Day month. It is also a five out of five for me. If no one understood that. (laughs) Um, That's like, this month has been a lot of heavy hitters for us. And I was worried about doing this, but I'm really happy we got to do Psycho because it it deserves to be talked about. This is, I can't say enough. (laughs) Even though it's been done to death and there's podcasts and YouTube videos and documentaries and films done on the subject matter, I myself could still not get enough if they were to release another documentary or another film on Hitchcock. I I will watch it. I will watch it. I love I love this movie. I love the cinematic history behind it. I love the story behind it. That's I mean, obviously, because we did a whole fucking episode on it. I can't this stop is our longest this episode. So I apologize to everyone, but it's warranted for this movie. It is absolutely warranted for this movie. But we hoped you enjoyed this very heavy, beautiful film. Um I hope you guys stuck around with us. I know we super nerded out, but you guys seem to like it when we super nerd out. We've gotten a lot of feedback that they like all the nerdy bits. So have at it, y'all. Have at it, y'all. If you'd like to keep up with us, you can follow us on our Instagram at the Carpenter Queens. Our Twitter is at Carpenter Queens. My personal account is Nicholas Alexander Photography. And my personal account is at STFU Ray. So please rate and review us. It really helps out the queens. So please rate and review wherever you are listening to our podcast. Like us. Tell your friends. Tell your mom. Clearly, she's going to want to listen to this one. Obviously, our mother's (laughs) special was made just for her. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We love you guys. We can't wait to do next week's episode. And we will catch you on the flip side, guys. Bye, 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 bye.